So these three passages are all connected to uh, the Sabbath, both the Sabbath as it was given creation, and then also the Sabbath as it was uh, restated in the fourth commandment. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus 20, verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then Deuteronomy 5.15 has one change. It's a restatement of the fourth commandment. Uh, so it's a one change from the Exodus account. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this morning we come again to your word and pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts uh, to hear and to love your scripture and to love the truth, and to love following the truth. Father, we, we need to ask for this, because uh, the very nature of what it is to live in this world, uh, the very nature of being part of a fallen humanity, is that uh, inside of us, there's all of that which desires to go its own way, contrary from you. We know that we have your spirit because we know that we have Christ, and we know that your Spirit is working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. So even now, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and then hearts desirous of obeying you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, once again, I want to remind you about the series that we are involved in this year. It's really about looking at Christ and all of the scriptures. And the reason why this is so significant is because that within American so-called Bible-believing churches, there has been a movement and even a new movement to separate the New Testament from the Old Testament and to separate Jesus from the Old Testament and Jesus from especially the laws that we find in the Old Testament. Um, if many of you might remember that uh, the city of Atlanta um, has for decades and decades had a very faithful and biblical ministry by a pastor by the name of Charles Stanley. You may have heard that his own son in a recent, um, very recent few years has moved in a direction distinctly different from that of the orthodoxy and faithful preaching of his father. Uh, so that even today, what Andy Stanley is happening to proclaim and preach is separate Jesus from the Old Testament. 
disconnect your understanding of Christ from all of that legal stuff, all of those laws, everything that you find there in the Old Testament, because that no longer speaks to us today. That no longer applies. Uh, and in doing that, Andy Stanley thinks that he's doing the best kind of public relations for Jesus and the best kind of public relations for Christians, because then we're not hampered with or encumbered with all those difficult questions that come out of the Old Testament. If we can disconnect Jesus from the law of Moses, then we don't have to say that Jesus is responsible or connected or in any way endorses any of that, which is Andy Stanley's basic program. Jesus is all New Testament, and look at the New Testament, and there's hardly anything in there that you should find objectionable. Well, maybe some things about marriage and maybe some things about sexuality. But overall, it's a great, great story. That position and perspective is deeply disallowed by Jesus Christ himself, who said in a number of ways in the New Testament that the Old Testament scriptures proclaim him and his story. Controversies with the Jews. John chapter 5, verse 39, he says to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have everlasting life, but it is these that bear witness of me. And in many other ways, Jesus made it very, very clear that he's not to be disconnected from the Old Testament, that he is, in fact, the heart of the Old Testament. And so if we're going to be Christians who are truly people of the book, it's the whole book. And if we're going to be Christians who truly follow Jesus Christ, we have to follow Jesus not only as we see him in the New Testament, but as we see and discover his presence all throughout the Old Testament. And that's the purpose of this series through this year, to really see Jesus as we read all of the Bible and to find him in the Old Testament. Now, the past few weeks, we have begun with creation, to see Jesus in creation, to recognize what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.16 that Christ uh, is the author and creator of everything because everything was made by him and through him and for him. So we see Christ as the co-creator of everything that has been created. But then also last week we began to look at the Sabbath day, the end of the creation week, to ask ourselves what's the connection between Jesus and the Sabbath day? And that connection is profound. We focused last week on, on how all of what Genesis is writing here is a confrontation against the paganism of the ancient world and how they looked at all the things that God had created and uh, looked at the celestial objects as actually some kind of deities that can control their destiny and, and that time was really, uh, uh, as it were, controlling them through the stars and through the sun, through the moon, those kinds of things. And we, we saw then that what is written in Genesis and all of the clocks that we find written there, and then especially in the creation week, a very different approach to the whole matter of time than we find in the pagan world. And that human beings are not servants of time, but time becomes the servant of human beings because we are created in the image of God, ultimately the image of Christ, who is himself the Lord over all of time. 
And so it's not the sun and the moon and the stars that ever determine our destiny. It's only Christ, ultimately, who determines our destiny. And so the main theme of last week and this week and next week is going to be Christ, the Lord over all of time, and particularly recognizing today as we get into the message that uh, Christ himself is the Lord of the Sabbath day, which means then that he is Lord over all of creation. I want to begin by talking about how we find within the Bible evidences that the idea of the Sabbath, which God established at creation, uh, reinstituted strongly for his people at the time of the Exodus, stated it again, last part of Deuteronomy, or the book of Deuteronomy, before they went into the Promised Land, how that idea of Sabbath, a word which means rest, the idea of Sabbath was attacked in the Old Testament times. Now, we could spend some time looking at how the um, Assyrians and others thought that uh, they had the week, uh, and the seventh day to them was a day in which they thought, it's not very auspicious to work on this day. They thought that the Sabbath day, as they understood it, was an inauspicious day. The reason why we don't work on that day is because it's a day in which work won't be blessed. <laughs> so it was a superstitiousness that caused the Assyrians to do nothing on that day because they were afraid that whatever they did on that day would turn out badly. Uh, there were others who thought the, the, the seventh day was a marketplace day. Uh, this was pretty much what we find in the, in the area of Canaan and all the paganite pagan nations there, all the Hittites and Jebusites and Gergesites and Mosquito Bites and all those kinds of things that we find there. That's a really old joke. High school joke. <laughs> Youth group joke. Uh, but I can't forget it. But when, anyway, all those, all those peoples, they found themselves um, using that seventh day as a marketplace day. When we come to the book of Nehemiah, which is after God has sent his people away into exile. The northern kingdom, 726 or so B.C., uh, to Assyria. Uh, the southern kingdom, uh, 586 B.C., away to Babylonia. And then they're coming back in the 5th century B.C. to the promised land. God raises up Ezra and Nehemiah, but particularly Nehemiah to be a leader of the people to uh, really call them back uh, to faithfulness to God. And I want to read something that uh, is said of the book of Nehemiah about those days. He worked very, very hard to get the Sabbath principle reinstituted into the life of the people. So in Nehemiah chapter 13, 16 to 18, he says, In those days I, I saw Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. So he's speaking to the Jews. But uh, Tyrians, that is people from Tyre, also who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way 
And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. See, what Nehemiah was saying is that the reason why, or one of the primary reasons why God exiled his people was because they desecrated and profaned his Sabbath day. Now they did this with their paganism. Uh, they did this by working on the Sabbath day. Uh, they did this by not honoring the temple. But in all these different ways, they broke the Sabbath, which ultimately led then to God sending the northern kingdom away and then the southern kingdom away so that they suffered as slaves in other countries for a long time. And then God begins to bring them back. Now, what's interesting is that Nehemiah instructs the Levites here. He commands the Levites to keep the Sabbath. The significance of that is the Levites, part of the priestly caste then, were the teachers of the law of God. And if they were commanded to keep the Sabbath, then they were going to faithfully teach the people to keep the Sabbath. And from this time on, 5th century B.C. up till Jesus' day, the Jewish people become Sabbatarian. They actually finally become Sabbatarian. They actually finally and faithfully keep the Sabbath day to such an extent under Caesar Augustus uh, before Jesus was even born the Jewish people had a special status within the Roman Empire. They were not required any kind of military service. Why? Because they would refuse to pick up the sword on a Sabbath. And Caesar didn't want those folks in his army because war doesn't stop on the weekends. Uh, and as well, they were exempted from other kinds of duties that other citizens of the Roman Empire were required to perform if it ever fell on a Sabbath day. That's how strongly Sabbatarian they had become. And when the Jews conquered them, they recognized this is something we're not going to be able to get around and change. And so they accommodated themselves to it. However, what we need to see, though, is that the strictness and faithfulness with which they kept the Sabbath became, under the teachings of the elders and finally the Pharisees, not a faithful observance of the Sabbath, but actually an attack and abuse of the Sabbath, an attack upon the Sabbath and its principles, and an abuse of the Sabbath in terms of how God had given it to his people. Because the Pharisees were, we know, super strict. And their interpretation of the law, following the tradition of the elders, was super strict in every way. But the worst of their excesses in terms of legalism were, in fact, how they treated the Sabbath. They created all sorts of rules and regulations and traditions in order to keep people from any sense ever being able to violate the Sabbath because they understood the Sabbath to be so significant. But they felt that it somehow, in some way, if we could just create enough rules, then this will keep people from ever violating the Sabbath. One of the things they did was they analyzed, of course, how do you violate the Sabbath? By working. They analyzed work in 39 different ways in order to be able to specify 39 different ways in which activities you might accomplish during the week are actually work that you were prohibited from doing on the Sabbath day. 
that's how detailed, precise they were, and in one sense, how picky they were about. There was even the point that you could only light a lamp on the Sabbath day in a particular way. If you didn't do it that way, you were desecrating the Sabbath because you were violating the Sabbath by lighting a lamp in a way that was actually considered to be work. That's how precise they were. Now, the result of this. This legalism virtually destroyed everything that God had intended for his people as a blessing connected to the day of rest. Because by the way in which they instituted and then governed and then strictly watched people, they made the observance of that day to be nothing other than a tremendous burden. The Jews during this period of time became slaves of the Sabbath, whereas the Sabbath was given to them to commemorate their freedom from slavery. It is the greatest kind of irony. Now, the reality then is that this approach was an attack upon the Sabbath. It was an abuse of the Sabbath that God had given to mankind and to the Jews to be of benefit and blessing to them. Now, we ought to know as well that the attack upon the Sabbath also became an attack upon Jesus Christ by the Pharisees. Mark chapter 2, we looked at this uh, back in 2016. (laughs) In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, there's that story where Jesus, on the Sabbath day, is going through a grain field with his disciples, and they begin picking the heads of grains and rubbing them between their fingers and hands in order to uh, make them then edible, and they were doing this. Now, according to the law of Moses, you could always go through a field and, quote, glean. You could always go through the edges of a field, and uh, anyone, but especially the poor, could actually find sustenance from doing that. It was perfectly legal what they were doing in terms of the grain field this day. But the Pharisees saw it, and they accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath because by rubbing the heads of grain in their hands, they violated one of those 39 regulations that they had come up with, of which, by the way, one-third of those regulations involved what you do agriculturally, And so they accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath, and by implication they accused Jesus as their teacher as also teaching this violation of the Sabbath. They said that what the disciples were doing broke the fourth commandment. Now, shortly thereafter, third chapter of Mark, Jesus goes into the synagogue And the Pharisees know that there's a man there with a withered hand. In fact, they probably set this up so that he was very prominently visible to Jesus. Because they wanted to see that in a synagogue would Jesus break the Sabbath by healing this man. Christ understood everything. He heals the man and he confronts the disciples. But we read in chapter 3 that at the end of this, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how to kill, how to destroy Jesus. The point being, we see a connection here increasingly between the observance of the Sabbath and Christ that 
the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath by their wrong interpretation automatically led them to an attack and an abuse of Christ. As they perverted the Sabbath, they persecuted Christ. And then we see this theme. Shows up in John's Gospel. Two places, John chapter 5 and then John chapter 9. In John chapter 5, there's the paralytic who's been decades by this pool of water hoping, according to uh, a Jewish legend, that an angel would come down and stir up the waters so that he could be put into the waters and be healed. But his complaint was that he could never get there in time. And so Jesus says, what do you want? And the guy says, I want to walk. And so Jesus heals him. Jesus says, take up your pallet and go home. Well, the Pharisees saw this man healed and immediately said, you're violating the Sabbath because you're working, because you're carrying your bedroll as you walk home. And so this involves a controversy in which the Pharisees realize it's Jesus who has done this, and they confront Jesus about this, persecuting Jesus, as it says in John 5.16. They're persecuting Jesus because he's violating the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath. John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's born blind on the Sabbath. Now, in order to make the issue even more pronounced, Jesus heals this man by creating mud, dirt, saliva, mud, puts it on the man's eyes, the man's healed. Now, people have often asked, why did Jesus do that? He didn't need to. But by virtue of doing it this way, number one, it's clear that Jesus is healing the man, and the man didn't spontaneously get his sight back. If Jesus had said, hey, open up, you can see, and that had happened, people might have said, well, what a lucky coincidence. No. But by virtue of what Jesus does, by making the mud and putting the paste upon the man's eyes, it's very clear that what Jesus is doing is creating the miraculous recovery of vision. It also makes it very clear that Jesus is violating the Jewish, under, the Pharisaical understanding of work. That's the point. That's the significant point. Jesus is intentionally doing what is right and good in a manner that he understands the Pharisees are going to reject. Because Christ and his connection to the Sabbath is so incredibly significant. And the Pharisees, in their own way, are making that connection. We see this man, Jesus, he's violating our interpretations of the Sabbath but he's doing these kinds of miraculous things. Now, they don't see it, they don't understand it, but we should see it. We should appreciate the attack on the Sabbath by the Pharisees was an attack on the Sabbath as a means of God's goodness and blessing and grace to his people. But because Jesus did so many of his most significant miracles on the Sabbath, the Pharisees attack him. So in their attack and abuse of the Sabbath, it naturally leads to their attack and abuse of Christ, as I said before, making this significant connection between Jesus and the Sabbath. Or 
when you destroy the blessing of the Sabbath day, you are attacking the Christ who has given the blessing of the Sabbath day to us. Now, what we see then as we understand the Sabbath from this perspective is two extremes. There's the extreme of treating the Sabbath day like the pagans did as either an unfavorable day or just another day, another day to work. Or the other side of it is to take the day that God has set aside and to make that day so highly regulated by rules and traditions that to follow the day that way enslaves you to that which destroys the blessing of that day. This is what we see happening. Now, in response to that, Jesus gives the correct interpretation, the right view of the Sabbath. So back in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, uh, Jesus says this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So in response to the criticism of the Pharisees that his disciples were doing work on the Sabbath day, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now I want you to understand that Jesus is referring to two things going back to the first week of creation. He's stating something about the creation of man and the creation of the Sabbath. When was man made? On the sixth day. When was the Sabbath? On the seventh day. Logically and chronologically, Jesus is using this form of an argument. Uh, The Sabbath wasn't, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man by virtue of the fact that man was created on the sixth day and by virtue of the fact that man was created to imitate God in terms of work because he's placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it and to work it. And therefore, the next day, the day after the creation of man, is the day of rest. So the day of rest comes to man as a blessing. Man isn't created for the sake of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is created for the sake of man. And that's what Jesus is saying. That is Jesus' interpretation. Now that takes the concept of the Sabbath far beyond the nation of Israel itself. It embeds the concept of six days of work and one day of rest back at the very creation. And it tells us that this day of rest was created for man. God himself didn't need any rest per se. God didn't need six days to create the world. God didn't need any time at all to create the world. And so the pattern we find in creation of six and one with that seventh day being the day of rest was a pattern that God designed for human beings. And that's what we find in the fourth commandment. As God did this, so you do this in the same way. Now, against the Pharisees then, Jesus is saying this. The Sabbath should never be a burden to the people of God. You have enslaved human beings to a multitude of rules. You've given them regulations that they can never even keep perfectly as they try to keep from violating the Sabbath 
you are inhibiting them from actually doing good and stopping them from enjoying the goodness and the blessing of that day itself. Their approach destroyed the very idea of rest and recuperation and the doing of good on that day, especially the good that would come to their own souls. At the same time, Jesus was restoring the original meaning of the Sabbath. Jesus is stating clearly, the Sabbath rest designed for us. The Sabbath rest designed for human beings. As well as rest, the opportunity, the provision to have that day in which one has the adequate time to focus upon the God who has created them. Now, last, the full connection to Christ that we find, the full connection to Jesus. It comes from Christ himself, the very next verse in Mark chapter 2, after verse 27, verse 28. Jesus says this, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now that's a profound statement. Son of Man refers to Jesus. Jesus is saying to them, indirectly, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Now, it's interesting now that Jesus is answering a fourth commandment issue, right? The Jewish law issue, the fourth commandment, by going back to creation. And so clearly the connection between creation and the fourth commandment is so very, very tight that when Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the creation Sabbath, he's also claiming then to be Lord of the fourth commandment because he doesn't make a distinction in his argument. He doesn't say, I'm Lord of the creation commandment, but I'm myself a Jew and under the fourth commandment. No, he says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Now, how can you be Lord over the Sabbath without being the creator of the Sabbath? How can you be Lord over the fourth commandment if you are not the creator and author of those commandments? And that is what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is saying in this way that he is the one who appeared to the Jews on Mount Sinai, well, to Moses, and with a fiery mountain appearing to the Jews. He is the one who actually gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on tablets of stone. That's the claim that Christ is making. Now, that's not a new insight uh, of anyone, any commentator today. That has always been the position of the church going all the way back into the earliest stages of the church, that the one who gave the law was none other than Christ, the Son of God. We find this in one of the old Latin hymns that we now have you know, updated and translated into English, but the text goes back in an ancient way. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The second stanza of those goes this way. Uh, Come, O come, thou Lord of might. Again, speaking of Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height 
in ancient times didst give the law and cloud and majesty and awe. The church has always understood who's the lawgiver on Mount Sinai? Jesus. Who was the one who gave the 603 other commandments that we find in the law, the total 613 that we find in the Mosaic law? Who's the author of all of those commandments? It's Christ. Christ is the, is the author of the law. Now, if we understand that, then we, we can't... It's hard to believe that those who would preach any kind of disconnection between Jesus and the Old Testament... Well, let's put it bluntly. They're no longer preach, preaching Christ. It doesn't matter how many times in a sermon they say Jesus or Jesus Christ. They are not preaching and teaching the Christ of the Scriptures any longer. Now, I understand the consequences of that as a pastor for what that means on the Day of Judgment when you stand before Jesus himself. I don't think it means any eternal reward. To deny Christ is to deny the very thing that saves you. If you ever think about that gentleman in Atlanta, you should pray for his soul. But this identification of Jesus in Sinai is really incomprehensible unless we understand that here also we have the foundations and basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible how we could understand the New Testament and the Old Testament and find Jesus in the Old Testament unless we understood even what we confessed in the Nicene Creed. Who is Jesus? God of God. Light of light. Begotten, not made. Who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. Born of the Virgin Mary. The eternally begotten Son of God is the one who was made manifest in the flesh, but who is also the one through whom the Father revealed himself all through the Old Testament times. Who stood with two angels before Abraham, Genesis chapter 18, who stood there and said to Abraham, next year at this time, your wife Sarah Sarai will have a son. Why did Jesus say, before Abraham was I am, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad? Because Abraham had that visitation from the divine Son of God who came to him and then had this discussion about the judgment and destruction that was going to fall upon Sodom and Gomorrah the implications of Jesus saying, I, Jesus, the Son of Man, am Lord of the Sabbath, takes us to Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of all the law, the Lord who appeared at Sinai, the Lord who appeared to Abraham. Every place we find a manifestation of the eternal God appearing to his people under the old covenant, we see Jesus. This is our Christ. This is our Redeemer.
Well, we can't separate Jesus from the Old Testament. But then we come to our final point, and it's simply this. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the day of rest. He's the Lord of the blessing of the rest. In the New Testament, we are told that that rest is not only temporal, but that rest is eternal. Christ is the Lord, not only of creation, but of redemption. And this is why the language of Jesus is so significant. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In that word rest, Jesus was promising everything that he came to do to free us from enslavement to sin, but also everything he means in terms of liberating us from the toil and bondage and burdens and shame and trouble of this life. That through Jesus, we enter into his eternal rest, both now and forevermore. Don't miss the blessing of this day, the Lord's day, which testifies to us of the everlasting day that we will live in the presence of Christ. Think about these things as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for all of the goodness and grace you've given to us in your Son, Jesus. And to be reminded this morning that the Lord of all creation is our Savior and Redeemer. And the Lord of the Sabbath is our Savior and Redeemer. And the Lord of our rest, both now and forevermore, is your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.